Jamie and Travis, Jamie and Travis, Jamie and Travis present. Hello, Jamie. Are you ready? Hello, Jamie. Steve Slocum. Steve Slocum. How about that? Here we are. We are 10 minutes. He just left. Um, I... I was smiling the whole time. A lot of a lot of information. Awesome stories. A lot of information. You can listen to this one ten times, and you'll grab something out of it. There are going to be some people that are going to lose their minds with all the different names, with the names, and with the actual experience. Yeah, and just open yourself up. Don't try to keep track, or get a get a notepad out, <laughs> or try to keep track. <laughs> it's like a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel. Like listen to this one in the car, and then listen to it again with Wikipedia open. And um, then listen to it again. Oh, Wikipedia! I'm gonna listen to this one in Wikipedia stuff. That's the deal. I was, I was, I was in the middle of trying to keep up while we were listening to him, and I couldn't. But it yeah, was, it, it's great. He's awesome. He's a uh, Hollywood guy. He's a Montana guy. He's uh, he's gonna come back like four times. Yeah, there's lots of stuff. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this conversation because it was pretty fucking great. Uh, you can get a hold of us at. Uh, do all the uh, check, check, check. Jamie and Travis present at gmail.com is an email address. Uh, at Jamie and Travis Pod is our Twitter. Is Twitter. Twitter. We're on Facebook. You can review us on iTunes if you so choose or don't, as the case seems to be. Uh, and we appreciate it. Oh, so appreciate it. And oh. it's because our podcast has the most minimal amount of popularity that Steve was like, please have me on. Let me talk. Really? Yeah. Because he it's a safe place? I, we are, this is... <laughs> we're a sanctuary we for storytelling. We are a sanctuary Aww. city. Oh, we're a sanctuary city. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you. This is... Jamie. And Travis. Present. Jamie and Travis. Jamie and Travis. Jamie and Travis. Present. Uh, anyway, we bought a little second house uh, so I could... Uh, indulge in Missoula and the music scene and the art scene and yeah. sell my photographs yeah. and stuff. Uh, yeah, and so I'm up here half the time, more or less. And in the bitter the other part? Yeah. So, like, lots of times when I'm doing hiking and outdoor stuff, I tend to be down in the bitter a little bit more. Uh, though I did pretty good last year up here on getting pictures. Waterworks Hill and Woods Gulch and cool. stuff that I've been uh, selling. So... Uh, yeah, I just go back and forth, and I've got I like to float the gorge and uh, awesome. and the Blackfoot, you know. So it's, clo- it's closer than the giant shuttle. Steve Slocum, thank you for coming on Jamie and Travis Present. It's no, awesome it's to have you. Glad to be here. I've been one of the, your fans from the get go. Um, uh, you're like a, a serious dude. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> I used to be. Now I'm uh, now now I'm just uh, kind of a happy retired guy, sort of selling my photographs. So you still photography? Yeah, that's I'm all in on that. I've been doing it for fifty almost fifty years. Oh, cool! So I'm actually seventy years old. Really? Scary. You're seventy? Yeah, so oh. I should be retired, but I'm doing these art show things. So I've turned down all the uh, network news jobs I've been getting. I turned down nine in a row oh. this year, and then they finally stopped calling. For what kind of thing? Uh, well, the last big one I did was the uh, bride that pushed her husband off the cliff in Glacier. Yeah. For Good Morning America. Yeah. That was like the, one of the last bigger shoots that I did. And you're in charge of? Uh, filming, you know, sound sometimes. Sometimes I bring a sound person in, uh, recording it. They'll, sometimes I do telephone interviews or okay. uh, cell phone or something so they can ask questions. And you're setting up the... The, the camera stuff, filming it, and then uploading it on a okay. satellite somehow rather than using 
that's what I meant when I said serious dude for everyone that's listening. Uh, you were like a Hollywood. You did this in Hollywood. No, I didn't do that in Hollywood. In Hollywood, I was all special optical effects, blue screen effects work, nothing to do with anything video. I came up here, helped set up a, a public TV thing down in Corvallis, started doing little documentaries, and then I got it plugged in with the network national I news see. shows. Okay. Well, in my it, brain, those are... All They're totally different. Like TV movie no. guy <laughs> stuff. No, it's, it's all the same. It's there's a big a, watch. There's a big difference between a 65 millimeter uh, motion picture production versus a video guy. You know, me and another guy right. driving around Montana doing videos. For well, let's let's go to let's go to film stuff. Yeah. Well, well, I don't. It's, it's in order to expedite this thing is we've got a lot to cover in yeah. this one production. I talked. I'm talking about, <laughs> which is. Uh, Captain EO, the Disney 3D Michael Jackson extravaganza. So I'm going to back up, back up a little bit okay. to get to get me into that. Perfect. What happened? So what happened? And uh, that was 1985 when that show started. In 1979, I was hired to work on Tron. Oh, that's amazing. Awesome. Uh, and okay, there was an odd deal. I had worked on Star Trek and gotten in the union, but got stuck in a low level assistant. Like really a low assistant category yeah. because of the politics of the situation in which the company I was working for became unionized. They only had so many positions, and I was pissed as hell that I got stuck as an assistant because my background, I know how to light, I know how to camera operate, compose. Yeah. So I got put in this thing, and my first union job was Tron. I was the second assistant cameraman. I did load the uh, magazines and and I didn't realize I could have gotten a little darkroom built on the stage. I didn't know anything about that. So I had to go like five blocks with these magazines for these 65 millimeter uh, film that we were shooting on Tron, and they weighed like 40 pounds a piece. And it was like <laughs> insane. And I would have to shuttle those back and forth. And anyway, uh, I, I was on it only about three weeks. I didn't do a very good job. I didn't know the proper way to hand people lenses. I didn't know all the little nuances of being a union assistant And camera. that's a big deal. It, they have their certain procedures, and you work right. your way up. You start as a loader, in a, and then you become a second assistant, which does the slating. And then the first assistant, which does the focusing and threads the camera. So I was at the bottom of the rung and, and didn't have any experience. And we went up to uh, Lawrence Livermore Radiation Lab and filmed Shiva, the biggest laser in the world, because we had connection via Ronald Reagan to get in there. Disney did, because no one else was allowed in there ever. So we went up there. Whoa. We went up to film this giant laser, and that was like the last... A couple of days I worked on a shoot and I and people they the guys I worked with hated me and because so, of how much you sucked at because handling I, lenses yeah because I didn't the whole <laughs> handling the lenses was definitely a big one and so what happened is uh, well I I met a guy uh, who's in charge of the effects Harrison Ellenshaw came up to me and he says you're still a photographer and everything I go yeah and he said would you shoot four by fives of us for big background plates four by five you know negatives. And I said, yeah, and I did that, and I met this guy, Harrison. Anyway, we came back to Burbank to, to, for a couple. We were going to be filming for a few more months on yeah. Tron, which was a disaster of a post-production thing. We can talk about it another day. Anyway, <laughs> I, I had to get off the show. They hated me. Uh, I wasn't doing good, so I heard a rumor. Disney was getting ready to do all these movies for Epcot. $200 million worth of shows for Epcot in Florida, the city of the at, future. At Disney World. At, at Epcot in Disney World, yeah. yeah. And 
$200 million worth, and one of them was a 3D thing. It's going to be 3D. So I, I uh, at lunchtime, I think, I walked over, found out where the, the guy who was directing it was, and I, and I went in, and they hadn't staffed up or anything. It was just a director, and they hired this guy, Murray Lerner. And I, so I told Murray, I said, look, at, I've got a degree in electronics. You know, I'm the guy you should hire. And he didn't have a cameraman. And I, th I saw a little in because I knew this guy, kind of, Paul Ryan. Uh, and I said, well, Paul Ryan might, you know, he might be good. And just because I know then I could get on because if I got, the, if a cameraman knew me, yeah. he'd hire me. Well, he liked Paul Ryan because he was tight with Terry Malick. There's a whole connection. Paul Terry Ryan did Days of Heaven, the second unit. Paul had done that. Second unit, Days of Heaven. He also did a movie called River Runs Through It, second unit. <laughs> And a movie called Horse Whisper because he had filmed uh, Downhill Racer and was a friend of Redford's. So anyway, I got Paul on, uh, and then he brought me on. But the weird thing was that, so I went home that night after talking to, to this Murray Lerner guy. He was a professor at this, uh, Harvard or NYU. And then I uh, turned on TV, watched Academy Awards, and there he goes. And he got an Academy Award that night for a documentary, Mao to Mozart. And then it wasn't until years later that I found out that he was the one that filmed Dylan going electric. Oh, really? He, it was him. Murray filmed oh, that, that going electric. Of course, she didn't get Pete Seeger running out with the axe because that didn't actually happen. But, that, <laughs> <laughs> but he did that, and then he did the Isle of Wight earlier in 1970, oh, you know, with Leonard Cohen and everything. And he got nominated for that Dylan thing, the Newport Folk Festival. He was nominated for a Academy Award. Damn. Okay, well, I'm getting too. I'm going down the rat hole in this magic <laughs> journeys, and we haven't even got this. So this was a 3D thing, Disney, mm -hmm. 1979, 200 million dollars worth of shows. There was like little offices they brought in all over the lot because there were so many directors hired. They had these screens that were going to be sent down to Florida for the actual uh, installation, but they mm -hmm. had them set up in the stages. They're like 60 foot wide screens, 50. Foot. They were all the stages were full of screens. And uh, so there wasn't even enough room to shoot in stages, so we they rented stages in, down in Culver City Ugh. so that we could, they could film. But it was basically there were crews all over the world. Were they like shorts? They were shorts. They're all 10, 15-minute little films that were done for the theme park. Oh, and it's and Epcot's like the international Yeah, so there and Well, there's a Kodak Pavilion, which yeah. is what was paying for the 3D thing okay. and stuff. Okay. So anyway, in this process of doing all these films, Disney built all the cameras from scratch themselves. Wow. Their machine shop was amazing. They built like 15 uh, 65 millimeter cameras, uh, 3D deals with beam splitter mirrors and all this complex stuff. And, it, and the things didn't always work right. So there was a lot of debugging time and stuff. Yeah. So I spent months and months there doing tests, shooting tests, trying to figure out what the problems were. The electronics that controlled the cameras were insane. They were big boxes, two feet by or three feet by three feet. Well, because a computer was like the size of a house at this. Yeah, and the problem is with 3D, you've got to have the camera synchronized so the shutters are moving in phase, so they're both opening exactly the same time. So you're driving these cameras with a special synchronous motors with a complicated electronics with feedback. So a 3D camera is like a robot. Like it has like a... a 3D, the deal with 3D is there's... A, 
Okay, you got it's your awful. left eye Isn't and your right eye. Awful? You got your I, I think it's awful. And I made <laughs> I and it paid too. And that's why I ended up moving to Montana. It paid for my house. 3D did. <laughs> that the, the, the simplest 3D is two cameras, one for left eye, one for right eye. They have to be two and a half inches apart like a human eyeball distance well you can't get those cameras that close because they they're they motors stuff. and stuff yeah. so you use a beam splitter mirror 50 percent mirror like a one-way mirror in a police station basically and one camera shoots off mm-hmm. the reflection and one shoots through it Whoa. Yeah. and that's the pr- and then you can get the interocular down to, to zero which is then would would have no depth on up to about four inches which is massive exaggerated depth so you can vary that yeah so we did this Magic Journeys thing, and it was a kind of out-of-control uh, project because Murray had only done documentaries. He had never done anything beyond that. So this was so far from that. Paul Ryan was a mistake, too. He was a great guy, wonderful, you know, reverence through it. That all that mm-hmm. He did all the beauty stuff, not the principal photography, second unit. Second unit. Uh, he had never been on a crane. He'd never worked with arc lights. Neither had Murray. We were in these stages, and we had rows of arc lights giant huge arc lights with the carbon rods yeah. you know and i mean it was a big and we had big stage big cranes big motion picture and it was a huge production and it was they had never been around anything like that so there was no doubt about it, they weren't really maybe the right horses for the course <laughs> uh so but anyway we muddled through it uh, got the thing done how did it go? Was it well received? It was well received. It, it, there was no real story. It was just kind of a lot of cool 3D things happening with fish flying through the air and just, it was really a gag reel. And the reason I hired Murray is he had directed another 3D thing for SeaWorld in Florida years earlier and it was just a piece of junk. But And it was just stuff coming at you, but it didn't have the production value and, and it just wasn't really good. But that was the only person I could find that had done anything in 3D was that one right. show so Marie got hired and then and then Disney just threw tons and tons of money at it and it was just insane and then I, I worked with this guy Eric Brevik he was the loader but he became the the effects director on it and went on to to fame and he shows up in the next production but Eric Eric was just a, a good friend of mine and, and he was a trainee through the union he was actually in a, the effects something division and but he was loading film there but he went on to do the post-production but he used to screw with uh, murray quite a bit because murray was kind of murray had a big cigar came out of bronx he was like so alien to us all california guys you know and here's these guys chomping in a cigar he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing we're all sorry about the language but it's a podcast oh it's our podcast yeah anyway uh so uh, so eric really uh had fun with the guy uh one thing he he uh there was one of the portable office trailers murray was in and eric figured out that the walls were all movable in the trailer so he took murray's office and every day moved it in like half an inch oh my god that's amazing. So he sh- shrunk, and Murray was so clu- clueless anyway to the, anything. He was just like oblivious. It room got, I guess, smaller oh, and smaller best. and smaller, so he couldn't even get around to get into his desk. Never noticed. Right? Oh, that's amazing. I love it. I love that. And then that so Eric was going through a filing cabinet looking for something once, and he found Murray's original contract, and he saw the expiration date on it, and it was like, a, 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 this is like a couple months into the show, and it was like in a week. So... The show was a near over. Was, obviously, he was going to be there for months more. So, but he took his parking sticker off, and he put down guest. 
<laughs> uh, the, on the day that the, uh, the, the thing around. But the best, uh, there, uh, there was two other jokes. Okay, the, the best thing he did was we were shooting this, we shot this shot of apple blossoms falling from the air in the stage with all black and the blossoms coming down to the camera. Camera's pointed straight up. Mm-hmm. And they're supposed to, you're supposed to project that and they're supposed to come commit off the screen and yeah. you know in your face well we shot it and Murray's to look at it he said they're not coming off enough they're not it's not enough it's not enough and uh, Eric was in charge of the of, of the post-production optical effects work and it was his job to sort of uh, spread the interocular as they say to make it come off the screen more yeah so he did it again Murray said yeah, it's not enough not enough it's not enough so so uh, Eric said, "Okay, I'll try again. I'll, I'll, you know, let's, next Tuesday I'll have, have some more stuff for you." So he, so next Tuesday the crew's standing in the stage. Maria hasn't gotten there left late yet. Eric comes in and tells everybody, "So I've got a special pair of glasses." And we go, "What do you mean?" And he goes, "I took these glasses and I busted out the right eye and I put two left eye polarizing lenses in, so you can't see 3D out of these glasses because they're not." blocking the information from the right eye and the left eye and the wear, how you wear those glasses, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. They were like, hadn't been modified. So they were both the same eye, so you wouldn't get any depth. Hands, tell us everybody, Murray comes in, hands the glasses to Murray. Oh. Murray puts the glasses on, everybody sits down in, the, in their chairs, projects this thing, and all, everybody's like waiting and waiting, and then Murray says, that's it! That's great. Oh. That's exactly what I meant. Oh. And everybody's just like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I wonder that with 3D sometimes, where I'm I'm watching a 3D movie and I'm like, I I perceive three dimensions in 2D movies. I yes, think. yes. Or that's that's acid or something. Yeah. Well, I do. Like in imagination or. Yeah, but I just no. I like perceive depth. Doesn't, I don't know, whatever. Uh, okay, what's next? So anyway, that, that was a complex pr- production. We filmed in Telluride. We did an interocular of 150 feet, which had never been done before, filming the clouds coming in over the Rockies. We did a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, and that's a, you know, that's a whole, there's a half hour more over that. And we you guys were go. building that technology. Basically. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. now they had, 3D existed back in the 50s. I mean, the House of Wax and Creatures in the Black Lagoon were really the same technology. Okay. They had two cameras and a beam splitter mirror. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, it was the fact that they built the cameras from scratch and, and they just pushed the ante up and doing in 65 millimeter, which is really bigger comp- frames. Bigger frames, higher quality. You want bigger apertures in your projector because you're losing so much light because the camp, the projectors have polarizing filters on them that right. are dark. So the bigger aperture, you can pump more light through. That's, it always seems dark to me through Yeah, it is because of that. Because you're kissing, off, you're kissing off like uh, uh, 70% of the light. Did you see Avatar? Yeah. In 3D? I, yeah, that was that real 3D, which is a different... Uh, that's, a, that's based on... A, um, a different filtration. Oh, really? A technology. The real 3D is, uh-huh. and I don't actually even understand that that much. Oh, that's like you're like real 3D TM. Like that's a like lower. Yeah, case. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, okay. right. It's a company. Huh. Okay. Uh, so anyway, the big disciple of uh, 3D has always been Jeffrey Katzenberg, who uh, you know formed that company called Dream uh, DreamWorks SKG. Yeah. With, yep. with, uh, so, uh, and I've met him a bunch of times so he came up with this idea in 1985 five years after magic journeys the 3d thing had been playing you know and they wanted to do a, a one for the disneyland theme park and not for epcot so much 
and they were, and Michael Jackson was super hot because Thriller had come out two years yeah. earlier, and and he just Michael Jackson was a Disney fanatic. He used to go there all the time. I mean, he just loved everything Disney, and so they came up with this idea. So uh, David Geffen, who was uh, Geffen mu- Records, uh, yeah, yeah, Geffen Records and things, and Katzenberg came up with the idea of doing this, taking Michael Jackson and. Oh wait, yeah, go go slowly through these next two names because this is amazing. Okay, well, we will. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna we got a lot of backstories on those guys, so <laughs> so they brought in George Lucas and Francis Coppola. To write a script and then produce this incredible music video is really all it is. Yeah. It's a 17-minute long, hyper, hyper expensive, insane music video. Like, nobody's ever... <laughs> it's still the most expensive, right? Like, uh, I, by minute, I think. It's yeah, the they, most... say, they say that. They say it was like 27 to $32 million. There's a, There's a lot of... Uh, arguing about exactly was at the time it was definitely the most expensive thing per yeah. minute. But there's like you know there's commercials that come on that cost yeah. a couple million dollars for right. thirty seconds and things. So True. I I don't I don't know, but it was at the time was certainly one of the most expensive things in the insane. So Lucas and Coppola were brought on. Francis Coppola was going to direct it. George Lucas was going to produce it. Uh, and we're, we're going to shoot at Culver Studios um, because the lot was full because they, I don't know why the lot was full. We did film later at the lot, but it was, it was three weeks. It was a three-week shoot. And uh, at that point in my career, I, had, I was now an accomplished first assistant, lead camera technician. Mm-hmm. So I had 10 people working for me. I had a trailer. And I had an electronic technician, an electronic engineer. I had a um, camera machinist. I had a bunch of first assistant cameramen, a bunch of second assistant cameramen, loaders, and trainees. I had 10 people in my own trailer. And because uh, we, we, had, we were going to run two camera systems, so we needed uh, extra assistance. And you got two cameras on each rig, so you need two assistants per camera. So anyway, it's a lot of people. Yeah. And... Uh, so Francis wanted to bring in Victorio Storaro, arguably the greatest cameraman in the world. Uh, and he had worked on Apocalypse Now with Victorio. Okay. So he brought Victorio in, and I'm a, like a super fan of Victorio's because that movie, The Conformist by Bernardo Berlucci, was like my, one of my favorite movies when I was in college, and the photography in that thing was amazing. And to get a chance to work with Victorio was amazing. But... Victoria wasn't in the union in the states, so there was like a problem. Is this was a union Disney shoot? That's hardcore stuff. So they had the I. The rumor was they spent one hundred thousand dollars on lawyers' fees to kick the door open enough for Victoria to come in and oh wow and shoot that movie. Whether that's sure or not, I don't know. That's like it seems like it would have been cheaper to have him just pay some union fees. I don't. Yeah, well, yeah. they do that in, in some places. Yeah, they have a standby, and, and I'll pay somebody to you know mm-hmm. to just stand by and do that. Uh, at the same, so it's a three-week shoot, which is insanely short, and didn't make any sense, and actually was totally bogus. But it was a, a three-week shoot. Coppola was uh, was running that. Uh, every now and then, he disappeared and he go to the next stage, and he had uh, Kathleen Turner for. Peggy Sue got married and he was rehearsing her. Oh Jesus! Oh really? Off, off and on. I mean, it was no. It wasn't taking away that much time. Was there it, a vibe like this was beneath a lot of people doing a music video for a theme park? Now, first, now it was a big. The, everybody knew this was the best of the best 
production ever. We had the best uh, music guy in the world. James Horner. James Horner. He's out there with Hans Zimmer and everybody. Yeah. If you like music, James Horner, who died two years ago in that plane crash. We had Horner on there. We had Jeffrey Kirkland, uh, production designer who did uh, uh, The Right Stuff, Doctor Who, Angela's Ashes, Children of God, Children of Men, I mean. Oh, wow. Uh, so we had the A-list cameraman, Storaro, who who had shot Apocalypse Now, but he did, he's done 71 movies including Last Emperor, Last Tango in Paris, Apocalypse Now, Reds. He's got three Academy Awards. Uh, <laughs> so big. Anyway, so th these were A-list people. And yeah. Vittorio was the one I was working under. He was the cameraman. He blew me away. He was Italian. He wore these long-sleeve Italian shirts. <laughs> he talked like I do with my hands. Yeah. And he ran everything. And I realized after working with him that he's the only reason Apocalypse Now got made because Coppola couldn't have handled the stress and the hurricanes and heart attacks and Martin Sheen and all the other stuff that befell them because Storaro got out in the center of the stage and he had walkie-talkies to commune with different departments. He, wanted, he had the clo clothing, the wardrobe colors, the background paintings, the set design. He was in everybody's face on every single aspect of the stuff. Holy Francis shit. didn't even have to... Didn't he have to think about that because he it, he was in everybody's face in everybody's department. Well, that's now, why he wants to use him, right? I think so because yeah. he just take, does all that. He was going to make sure that the whole thing is a look, yeah. yeah, you know, and stuff. So Victoria was just like, just you know, blew me away because I had never seen anybody that was as as elegant and and articulate <laughs> together and just <laughs> uh, yeah and together and just running everything and just like totally. Just amazing, and that's that's why I'm sure Coppola brought him on. Wow. Uh, so and then we had Rick Baker doing special effects, and Rick Baker's like did Men in Black, Planet of the Apes. He's won seven Oscars. I worked with him three or four times. He is the best. He's the heir to Dick Smith, who was the famous Hollywood makeup guy in the '60s and '70s and stuff. Rick Baker's great. He was there. We had uh, Jeff Hornaday who choreographed Flashdance. The best choreographer. We had the best. Dancers oh. in, in L.A., we had 36 dancers. We had the best ones. We had the top break, top break dancers probably in the world there, a couple of those guys. So it was like everything was A-list. Yeah. And, 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 I, and you knew it was A-list because it was high security. Nobody could get in without special badges in the stage. Security people were all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and, and celebrities were there. There's like there's part of the set you could sort of sit on it. I'd look over there. I saw Barbara Streisand. Saw Sophia Loren. Uh, Joni Mitchell walked by me. They're just watching. They're just watching. They came for like a day. There's Saudi princes in white, and there's Rolls Royces stacked up in front. Oh, weird. Out front, and there's <laughs> and there's a Saudi princes are there, and Joni Mitchell walked by, and she, uh, 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 Michael didn't say anything, and I turned to the, one of the trainees who was fairly. Uh, a wealthy USC student, whatever, and, and I said, what? Michael didn't acknowledge her. I guess he didn't know her. And he goes, oh, no, all those rich people know each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a club. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. So we, I thought, wow, why would anybody, uh, why would anybody blow off Johnny Mitchell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. So anyway, um, it's high security. Mm -hmm. So, but some, but we found that after uh, there were people that came in to do like maybe set painting or do a, a specific job of some sort or other, install something, and then they left. Well, we started harvesting their tickets. 
So they're badges. Oh. They're security badges. So we started building up a collection of security badges. So I got my wife and daughter, who is six, my daughter was six, in, with the in through all the security so they could watch Michael. And the production numbers were amazing. The dance things, 36 dancers, Michael singing, 5,000-watt uh, sound system, huge sets. So it was an awesome concert every day. It was, yeah, it was amazing. Most every day. I mean, not every day was musical. There might be some acting yeah. scenes and stuff. So what was incredible about it is the 3D cameras require motors to focus the lenses because you can't be turning both by hand and they're in weird positions. Mm -hmm. So I, there are motors on them and I have a cord with a control box that's so 20 feet long cord and I can turn that knob and both cameras focus together. So I've got this box. Well, in order to gauge distance so that Michael was in focus, Rather than stand by the camera as you do on every other production, I had this long 20-foot cord and box. So I could go off to the side and have the camera on my right off in the distance and Michael on my left. I was in the middle of the dance floor with Michael. <gasps> dancing. Oh. He's moving. I'm moving. <laughs> Michael and I are literally out there dancing. And there's Coppola and Lucas and Barbara Streisand and all these people, and I'm out there like this, and Michael's moving back and forth and in and out, and I'm making sure I stay out of the frame. So I'm right on the edge of the frame, and I'm just dancing around like just, you know, and it's just like, it just, it just was wild, you know. I, there, I mean, I felt like I was out there because I'm out in the middle of everything. But the, the thing is, uh, I had a little spy camera, a little contacts Zeiss camera that I wore in a little belt pack, and assistant cameramen always have these little belt pack things on with tape measures and shit. So, yeah. So it was no, no big deal, but it was a tiny little camera. And I, it, there was a no photography allowed, no photography allowed, no photography, security everywhere. Right? Yeah. I took 50 rolls of film oh my behind gosh. the scene. The camera, the 3D cameras were so big, I could like get kind of hide in it almost under the camera and take shots like that that nobody could see what we weren't filming like and get shots or rehearsals and things i could you know i could block the camera if it was just a rehearsal or something like that. so i i took pictures like crazy and then i went around and filmed all the behind the scenes people the creatures we had all these little creatures you know the a la lucas you know Ewok yeah, yeah. type stuff and everything so i i took 50 rolls of film illegally where is that well that's all on uh, Facebook. It's on Facebook. Oh, it's on Facebook? You can, you can, yeah. you can go dive to, through that. Go to Steve Slocum and look under albums, and then you'll find Captain EO, and you can see all the pictures they took. Have you gotten any flack for that? No, but anyway, here's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, I covered myself. Here's what happened. It's, it, this was at the end of almost three... Uh, my hearing aids just rang a phone in oh, my in ears, ears, too, yes. like Bluetooth. <laughs> oh. So anyway, I I was you know I was getting away with it, but, and then after like a couple of weeks, I was I came back from lunch, a little bit early. Uh, there was a, just a few people there, and waiting for the rest of the people to come back from the commissary down the thing, and somebody comes running up to me and says, "Steve, the security guards are looking for a guy wearing shorts that's been taking pictures," and I go, "Holy shit!" So I just going through my mind, I'm going to get fired, but then I realize they can't really fire me. I'm just like too important. Yeah. But then again, it's not a good thing. They're going to take my camera and film, or something's going to happen. Yeah. And I just, what the shit am I going to do? And then I suddenly I had this incredible flash. Victorio Storaro has documented with his with the Nikon camera every setup on 
every movie since Last Tango in Paris for a book. He gets up at every single setup. He takes one picture before the camera's rolling, and he gets out of the way. And he and Victoria was like, "God, I ran over to Victoria and I said, Victoria, uh, they're coming for me. I've been taking pictures. Can I tell them I'm taking them for you?'" And they, he goes, "Yes, go ahead." Whoa! And the security guards all of a sudden materialize around me, and I said, uh, "I just taking pictures for Victoria." They just put their hands up. Oh, okay, no problem. Oh, no, sorry, man. Jesus. Whoa! So that was like I couldn't believe it. I pulled that out of thin air. Oh, awesome dude, too. And then I, after the show was all the, the shoot was all over, I let the head of Disney publicity see my pictures because they would have been great for a Cinefix magazine article on the making of behind the scenes because I documented the makeup. So Disney then knew about it, and that, that's the reason I got hired in Hamilton on the Disney movie that came up there because I got the head of publicity to call and say you want this guy so i covered myself you know so i got these pictures anyway uh i went on my way to photograph the behind the scenes i wasn't trying to get celebrity pictures of michael right i I did get some big dance numbers and stuff but i wasn't you know trying to sneak pictures of michael you know that i could sell yeah i wanted to capture the what went on i mean we had all these amazing uh characters and costumes and stuff and i would take their pictures and make prints and give them to them but especially with their heads off because george lucas has a policy no pictures taken of creatures ewoks r2 d2 anything with their human seeing their human head underneath they that's gonna break the illusion you're not allowed to do that so all these people have been working on these shows for years and never had any picture with their head so i i went around backstage and took pictures of tony cox the you ever see bad santa Mm -hmm. tony cox the little black dwarf he was in a costume so I've got oh, Tony standing there. He played Hooter, the little green elephant-like feature. So, you know, so I came back, you know, the, the, the next day, and I gave Tony, you know, a picture. And, that, and same with uh, Debbie Lee Carrington. You probably remember her from uh, Total Recall, Thumbelina the Prostitute. Yeah. With she, no. Not the three-breast one. Not the three-breast one. I had to research that myself. I wasn't sure she was the one of three-breast. <laughs> so I, I worked on Total Recall in Mexico. She's from Helena. And she's been in all this. She's from, from Helena? She was from Helena. And she was, and so we talked about Montana because in 85, I was living in Montana and had come down to work on a show. And we started talking, and she was from Montana and everything. She's been, she's been every like Ewok and every creature on there. She's no three shit. foot, three foot ten. Wow. That's funny. Uh, and uh, see, this is some people. Uh, uh, Coppola's son, Gio, was directing second unit on the next stage. Giancarlo, um, uh, Gian, Gian, Giancarlo Coppola, his son, and he was just great. He was 22 years old, and he was a fabulous director. You could tell. And then a year later... He was a fabulous director? I, he, he, to me, seemed like he really had his act together. He's yeah. 22 years old. He had already been working since he was 16 in the films with yeah. his dad. He was in Godfather and a bunch. But he directed, you know, second unit directing and everything. Yeah. And he was just a cool guy, and it was just a, really a tragedy when he got decapitated a year later when Ryan O'Neill's thing in that boating accident and died. And so, you know, his sister was Sophia and Roman, you know, she went on, of course, to, you know, be a big director and he was, would have been, but it was really sad. I, I sent some pictures to try to get him to Coppola of his son working, you know, directing himself. And, uh, we had Angelica Houston was the wicked witch now, I have to admit, I didn't see Jack Nicholson once on the set, and I was looking for him because they were dating uh, heavily at the time. 
They're yeah. heavily dated. <laughs> <laughs> How can you not be? If oh. you're dating Jack Nicholson, you've got to be heavily it's dating. Heavy. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. it's all in, for sure. It's probably very intense. <laughs> so anyway, uh, she had to be in this Wicked Witch costume, which was like a giant rubber, crazy, co- covered your face, yeah. and horrible thing. It took like four hours to put on and everything. And she got into it for her scene, and she started to have an anxiety attack. And I, I had my little focus control and stuff, and for some reason, and I don't know, I didn't do it on purpose. But the, my focus control box dropped out of my hands, landed on the ground, broke, <gasps> shut the whole show down. Production's down. We can't focus. She's like, get her out of the thing. She, they took her out, took her off the cable. She was suspended in the air. She got a chance to recover oh, and gather good. her composure because she was had been losing it, being squeezed in these cables and lifted in the air. She had time. I took the box and went back to the trailer and opened the screwdriver and tried to figure out, you know, what was wrong with it. So I took me half an hour for, or maybe longer, and I fixed the control box and went back on the set. And then she was composed, and we and we get, did the shots. So I actually. Saved her ass inadvertently. I mean, I, so you were like, if you didn't have your shit together, nothing was going on. It, it on was good. Well, there were other assistant cameramen around, but not they didn't have that background. I did it with a three D yeah. system and everything. And You're manually focusing as they're dancing and stuff. That seems uh, whenever there anybody's moving, yeah. every shot I was focusing on. But the dance numbers were the insane ones because the camera was moving in and out. Yeah. That Micah was moving in and out. Yeah. And around, and I'm just I'm out in halfway between them, but just out of frame. Yeah. Well, you don't have a monitor, so you're doing it just based on distance. Yeah. Uh, well, I know the. I, I don't. Ha- I would have liked to have a monitor so I didn't end up in the shot. Yeah. You know. But I. But I had looked through the cameras enough and knew the lenses and everything, mm-hmm. so I knew if there was a. 50 millimeter lens yeah. I knew approximately where it was and I'd just give myself an extra couple of feet you know so so I could move around like so that so can I ask you what the vibe around Michael was at that time because well, like he was on his okay. he was ascending he was ascending like he was a dark, dark skinned Michael yeah and the next mm-hmm. time I photogra- worked with him a couple years later he was the light skinned Michael <laughs> so changes uh, everything it, we had inklings of strangeness. Michael came on the set with his entourage. I, I remember one day in particular, and Bill Decker, our key grip, yeah, who saved my life on the production. He's six foot five, and I fell off of a scaffolding. It broke, yeah. and I fell over backwards. And with a camera like that, I would have been crushed on the ground. Bill reached up and caught me midair Holy in shit. 1985. And I, I haven't seen him since then, and we've stayed friends ever since. Christmas cards and uh-huh. stuff. He saved my life. So. Uh, <sighs> Uh, so anyway, so uh, he, uh, Michael was coming in one day, and and this key grip uh, turned to me, and he said, "Look," and I go, "What?" And he and he sees Michael in the entourage, and he's got a ten-year-old blonde boy with him. No, oh, weird. And Steve, <laughs> weird. So Bill, knew it was gonna be weird. <laughs> Bill, Bill turns to me, and he goes, sh- kind of shook his head, and he goes, "Only in America could you have a little white pet." Oh. oh. <laughs> Jesus. So, so I, this was this was before any of the you know stuff had come out. Yeah. And so Bill just said that out of the blue. So anyway, but Michael was great to work with. He was the, there punctually, and and totally was into it. And I, I never, you know, I didn't really talk to. I didn't need to talk to him. I mean, you know, you know. Did he t- talk to people? Was he chummy? He wasn't what I would call chummy. He was focused on what he was going to do. Yeah. He wasn't chummy. But one day, lunch. 
I had gotten back early and I was on the spaceship set, which was on a giant hydraulic gimbal. Like the, the thing is like 20 foot long, so it could fl- move to the air. Yeah. And I was just in there by myself. Michael came in, no entourage. There's nobody else. It's just Michael and I in the set. And I go, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something here. We're gonna. So I said, okay, pretend you're Michael Jackson. Put your, put your head in that, in that space, the Michael that you know. And I turned to Michael and I say, Michael, wouldn't this make a great playhouse? Oh and he looked at me, he looks around and he goes, Yes! Oh. Yes! <laughs> so I knew I target, targeted and yeah. home run. <sighs> totally something he could relate to. Wow. Totally. That's um, a, like a superpower of yours though, though. To be able to relate to people. Well, like to put they put yourself in yeah. their headspace, yeah. you know. Uh, empathy. Yeah. And they had a behind the they had a behind the scenes crew filming, sixteen millimeter uh, uh, a separate you know ca- little camera uh, yeah. little camera sixteen millimeter they had a, uh, a cameraman a sound guy a, a production assistant they had an editor somewhere else and they had a director and they were following us around and filming for a behind the scenes making of kind of thing and I became a good friend of the guy Bob Collins, but uh, they, they had been filming like two weeks and they got a. Uh, call from the editor of the of the behind the scenes and they he said what's this blonde guy this curly haired blonde guy and and bob said i don't know what you're talking about man and the guy says he's in every shot and and bob says what do you mean he goes yeah you'll be sh- shooting uh uh francis coppola and then you'll and he's talking to lucas and then you'll you put the camera the other way and film lucas and the same blonde guy standing next to him the guy was running around what this, the guy was running around? He said he was like a production assistant, a real low, <laughs> low-level guy. He was running around inserting himself in the background of every oh, single shot. That's hilarious and brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and that was Steven Spielberg. No, no, that would, no, no but I'll, oh, you want to hear about Spielberg? Spielberg would call a couple times a day, and I was I would be standing there, and somebody would come in and say, uh, 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 George. Uh, Steven's on the phone or Spielberg's on the phone and they, they talk I realize that all three of those guys Coppola and Luke's they talk all day they talk every day amongst themselves their things are all uh, entwined but uh, so Lucas didn't do much he was the produ- he was the producer but he didn't do much you know he wasn't directing it yeah. but he was sitting there and, and getting his ear nibbled on by Linda Ronstadt because they were dating and it was just kind of we were going, looking over there and he's and George's ear would be in Linda's mouth, and we were going, well, that's kind of like, you know, on public. <laughs> like, literally? In, yes, literally. Like, in, a, in his mouth. Wow. Uh, the look on Jamie's face is like, so hard to get stuff done. So, uh, anyway, to talk about uh, Coppola a little bit. Coppola went to UCLA like I did. I was in engineering. He was in film, and he went on to work for Corman and all these people. He was, most of the people from UCLA, I find, are down-to-earth, egalitarian people. They didn't go to USC. They didn't have rich parents. They didn't have the money for that. Yeah. Coppola was a down-to-earth guy. He was real approachable. You could go have lunch with him. You could talk and sing in line. He was the kind of guy that a grip could come up to and say, hey, Francis, wouldn't it be cool if the camera was, like, coming down through the air during that shot? And Francis would, instead of blowing him off or say, why are you talking to me or something, yeah. he would, like, think, Hmm, yeah, well, interesting idea, you know, and whether yeah. he'd act on it or not. But he was approachable enough to where any crew member could come up and talk to him. He really didn't have that wall around him or, you know, any kind of uh, weird vibes. He was really an affable guy. That's cool. So after three weeks, the movies, they said, okay, we're done. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. 
It's a wrap. And we all sit around and go, hey, really? There's enough. We got enough stuff shot. Well, it turned out that there wasn't a wasn't there wasn't like there's was like 15 percent of a film or something. There really there's, nobody followed the storyboard, the script. Right? There was there was missing stuff. It was just just in chaos. So they left, never to be seen again. I didn't see Victoria, Lucas, Coppola again. Six more months went on. They were gone. It was quote second unit. So we oh. started off in these state. We would rebuild part of the sets. We brought in Joe Johnson to, to direct it. Joe Johnson was the storyboard artist for Lucas. He went on to do October Skies, Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. I don't think he had directed as of then, but he came in to direct for a while. And we filmed and filmed. And uh, then, uh, you know, I come back up to Montana sometimes. And then two weeks later, it'd be like, go on back down and we're going to shoot some more stuff. We need, we're going to shoot Michael and Blue against Blue Screen. We do that. We brought and then uh, Joe Johnson was busy, so we brought in Walter Murch, who's considered to be the world's greatest editor and sound recordist, and has won umpteen Academy Awards. And he was just great to work with. He came in to direct; he had never directed before, and he was just getting ready to go off and do Return to Oz, which is a whole nother amazing story in itself, because he had a nervous breakdown during that. And Spielberg and I don't know Lucas went over and bailed him out, but it, but, uh-huh. he, but it was an amazing. Yeah. Experience. But anyway, so Walter came and he also edited the final film. So it just went on and on and on. And Harrison Ellenshaw, who was like a uh, an effects visual effects supervisor, sort of, along with my friend Eric Brevig, a lot of these people were friends of mine from from prior from the yeah. prior thing. So we were really, we had a tight group. I mean, we had you know camaraderie and everything. And Let's see, my brain just got blocked up. But I wanted to tell this other little quick story. Uh, Cindy Curlin was a second assistant cameraman. She was a, a wife of my friend Mako, who was a first assistant cameraman there. And and Cindy wasn't super experienced at that point. And I, one time she ran out uh, to slate the, the slate yeah. the front, and slammed into Michael. And she like, took him out. I can't remember. I, I can't remember if she knocked him over. Or just kind of slid into him and just knocked him sideways because she was late in getting out there and the cameras were rolling and they said slate slate, you know, and she came flying out and just like nailed him. But the, the funny thing, this is what cracks me up. This this little side story. So one of the camera technicians that worked at Disney that I worked with before on the production um, had me over for dinner at his house in the San Fernando Valley, and. To back up a little bit, Cindy Curland was a super fan of the movie I loved, Conformist. She went through Europe and visited every place that that movie had been filmed. She was totally infatuated with Victorio Storaro and his photography and everything. She had gone to every location in Europe. I mean, made a huge trip. And that movie's done like in 70 or something. Anyway, so she just loved them. So I'm over at the camera technician's uh, house for dinner, and I look out in his patio, and there's a, a director's chair with the name Victoria Storaro in the back of it. And I go, holy sh... I didn't, I didn't know you were a fan of Storaro's. And he says, oh, no, I... I I don't even know. My, I just needed a, a new chair back for my patio chair. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized I should have offered him 10 bucks for him to go buy one and give that to Cindy because it would have just made her day. But yeah, I, I didn't awesome. know what to... I just, like, just was stunned that somebody oh. had taken this famous guy's chair just for a chair that's back. That's awesome. <laughs> Wait, so it uh, after three weeks, is this for money reasons that all the super famous people are gone? No, and... they just thought that they, they had gone through a checklist of what needed to be shot sort of and didn't really pay much attention to it. I think, I think, and they probably, they probably, these guys said were busy. 
They're or all busy. Yeah. You know, they're super busy people. They're, he's got to do Peggy's who got married. You know, Coppola does. So I think they just had say they just said, well, we'll, we'll do it in three weeks. They, then nobody really thought about th- it. Thought if about that was it. Possible. So just thing went on and on and on and, and and then there was all the motion control and effects work. And this is where I turned into director of photography, which was nice. So I finally, instead of being the assistant cameraman, which I always bristled at a little bit because it's not creative. And I've I, a lot of the reasons I take still still pictures is for creative outlet to compensate for some of that technical stuff. So we started shooting. Uh, we went over to the Disney. Let me see here. We went over. To, we went to Disney where they had a computer controlled motion control camera system uh, running called Asus, and it was computer controlled in the early days of it. And it was very complicated and prone to breakdown. But we were going to film the, the spaceships and things. So I was in charge of that. And because the cameras were so big, we couldn't fly the camera on this gimbaled system. We had to fly the spaceship, which is ass backwards. Most of the time, you fly your camera and leave the spaceship and the lighting, oh. leave that in one place. Mm-hmm. We had to move the spaceship, which meant we had to move the lights. And they were on right, giant poles sticking out from it. And the thing was like this huge six-foot diameter beast. And it, sh- and it shook and waddled as it moved. But you can't have any movement in it. So we would move it an eighth of an inch, and then it would have to sit for two minutes until it settled. Oh. And then take another picture. <laughs> and then it would move an eighth of an inch. And, and we, so some of these shots were taking like three days. I would leave the lot. The camera would just run. So the, the production manager started calling me slow-mo because the, <laughs> that became my nickname, and I, stu- I still use it as a moniker because it was just insane. And the thing would, you know, the computer would glitch. Everything went wrong, and finally, at the end of, I spent weeks and weeks as a director of photography on that, and it was just, it was kind of a disaster. And finally, uh, Lucas, uh, from he was up back up in San Francisco at ILM. He said, "You guys aren't. This isn't looking good. Uh, we're going to redo it. We're going to do it with our camera system. It's just one camera, but we'll do two passes. We'll do a left eye and then a, and move it over two and a half inches and do a right eye, and we can make it look like an X-wing fighter going in a Death Star oh. and make it cool because you guys aren't able to do any of that with the giant monstrosity. So he actually took that over. An only shot of mine ended up in a movie from that stage was the little tiny baby robot coming out of the back of Major oh, Domo. And that, that ended up in a stage. <laughs> then, but then there was a whole other section that I was a director of photography on another stage, and that was a robot transformation sequence with stop motion where you take and move something a little bit, take a picture, picture. and they were moving them through the air on piano wire or fish line. So all these little parts were going through the air and taking days to move through space one frame at a time. And I would take a picture, and then the animators would come in and move it a little tiny bit, move everything a little tiny bit, take another picture. So that went on for weeks. And I did that, and that came out beautiful. So that was... And these are for like 30 seconds of... Yeah, like 30 seconds. Yeah, like 30 seconds of robot (laughs) translation. And then we had a, a whole nother set where we were flying through another stage. It was built with a, with a miniature city, like 30 feet long. And that, and that was filmed with a motion control. <coughs> was it motion control? Yeah, it was some, some kind of motion control rig. I can't even remember. And it just went on and on. And I'd go back to Montana, and, they, and then they'd get a call, and they'd fly me back down, and we'd shoot some more. And so Harrison started, Harrison's a little sarcastic sometimes. He started calling them the Steve Slocum charity reshoots because he knew that when I'm up in Montana, all I was doing was hiking. Yeah. Hiking and floating and stuff like that. I didn't have. I wasn't making any money up here. So he started calling these things the Steve Slocum charity reshoots because they had to keep bringing me 
keep bringing me back oh, down. Um, when, at, when, while we were shooting in Culver, there was another production next door and another stage. Uh, and I, I was walking by, and I saw this friend, kind of a friend of mine, Ed Varoke, came out, and he's the illustrator. And I said, what, uh, what, what are you guys shooting in here? And he goes, oh, it's a, just a terrible piece of crap. And I go, well, what is it? Oh, it's a guy in a little rubber suit. And I go, what's the name of it? And he goes, E.T. That's <laughs> <laughs> a guy in a little rubber suit. <laughs> because from his perspective yeah, on the yeah, stage, yeah. you know, this guy in this little rubber suit, you know, in the closet, you know, and yeah. all that stuff they were shooting out on the stage. Oh my God. So it just goes to show how you can work on something and not have a and clue. Not have a clue. Have a clue. Because I worked on that man who wasn't there, the 3D thing, uh, 3D Paramount movie with Steve Gutenberg, and we thought it was just funny as hell. And it was not, it was. Leonard Malton, the film critic, called it the worst movie of the year. And it was. It was terrible because it wasn't funny or anything, but on the set it was funny. Uh -huh. They were doing stuff and we were cracking them. I'm going, this is a funny movie. And it's all edited together and I saw it at the yeah. theater in Missoula and I go, holy shit, this thing isn't funny at all. <laughs> Are there any clues when you're on a set? Like if you think it's funny... This, is I, it there, a bad sign? I don't think there's. A, I, I, I don't just know. Don't know. I don't know. I think it's like hard to tell. Mm -hmm. So much is built in the editing and everything anyway. And totally. It's, it, you know, the only one that was totally after Captain EO. Uh, several years later, they Disney went back to do another 3D thing, and I guess Michael. They might have pulled Captain EO by then. I'm not exactly sure. This was sort of like the. The first heyday of well, the, that, that, of the Magic 3D? Journeys in 1979 was the was the Epcot 3D thing. Yeah. Just after that, there was a movie called Coming at You or something like that, and there was a, 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 a 3D, 3D movie. 3D movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I started working on other 3D movies like Friday the 13th and stuff, uh, Part Three and 3D. So it was a mini boom then, and then it died, and then it came back to, ten years with, later with with. You know the avatars and everything mm -hmm. else. It became a uh, a huge deal. Um, let me see here. Well, anyway, Muppet Vision was several years later, uh, and they decided to uh, to replace the Captain EO with the with the Jim Henson Muppet Vision thing in the, at Disneyland. Yeah, so that was a night and day different experience from the chaos of Captain EO and the the, the overrun. It was budgeted eleven million and came in like close to thirty. And that money was spent, they said, in post-production. It wasn't the, the the Lucas and Coppola there that ran the budget. What ran the budget was the Steve Slocum charity reshoots yeah. and all that stuff. They kept going. I mean, they had to hire whole crews. I mean, they had gaffers and you know electricians and uh, grips and everything. I mean, and and pay for my plane ticket. I why suppose. Are, why is Hollywood? You hear about this kind of stuff well, all the time. Well, Kevin's Gate or whatever. I mean, yeah. You hear about it all the time. Uh, well, Hollywood just join if somebody doesn't know what they're doing at the top and stay hands-on through it, okay. So on, so Mupp, when when Jim Henson showed up, this is like five years later or something like that. I'm not, can't remember exactly. See, two, you know, uh, when was it? I'm not sure. Like five years later or something, they brought in Henson to do a Muppet Vision thing for the California World. Yeah. And for so, and Henson was totally on top of everything. He he was the director, he was Kermit, you know, he's yeah. he had his all his puppeteers there, Frank Oz, everybody was there, Dave Goles, all these guys, Bean Bunny, uh, you know, all the Bunsen, all the characters. Yeah. So it was amazing. It was a, it was only a two like a two well, maybe it was a three week shoot. It was two to three weeks at Disney. Same length as Captain EO, but they got it all done. And it was like each day was amazing. We'd do one shot one each day, one shot. 
and the shot was so complicated with the cameras were moving through <coughs> miniature sets. Muppets are, are uh, live in a world where their floor of a Muppet world oh, yeah. is three feet in the air. Mm-hmm. So the puppeteers can hide underneath and can pop up and stuff. Totally. So you got this huge camera system on a big dolly and it's going to have to move through this so all the floor panels are hinged so they can lift them up out of the way you know as you get close and you can't yeah. see it and they can drop them so but they're really complicated shots as and all these gags had to happen we would rehearse all day long and then in the late afternoon we do would the go shot. for it and we do the shot and it was like this complex series of things and it was like that every day and they edited the the video uh it's called video assist the, the rough video from the movie cameras, they edited it together after the uh, like two weeks, and there was the whole show. You could watch it. It was like, didn't I mean it needed effects? It needed, I mean, it needed some visual yeah. effects, but it was all like, it was all there. It was like amazing. It was like, like it was somebody never, had a plan. Yeah, like, and, <laughs> and what's amazing with the way the Muppets uh, work when they're in front of the camera, they have a black board that's uh, right out of the camera frame so they can see where to keep their sleeves and hands out of, so they don't get photographed. Their mm-hmm. hands, so you just see the puppet. Oh, yeah. So they're there, and I'm filming uh, uh, Kermit and Miss Piggy, which is Jim Henson and Frank Oz. And when the cameras needed to run out of film, they wouldn't get out of character. They would be there and start talking to me. It's Miss Piggy and Muppet, oh, and I'm trying to load. That's them. awesome. I'm trying to load the cameras, and they're like just going, "What are you doing there?" And this and that, and they're just like carrying on talking to me, and and I had this. Did uh, you talk back? Well, yeah, yeah, I talked back, and then I and 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 then uh, Kermit got upset because I had a little plastic Kermit head glued onto this thing. It's called a front box. It's a special. Thing assistant cameramen have it's made out of wood and fits in front of the camera out of the frame and holds tape measures, markers, little assistant camera shit. And on the front of it, I had a plastic Kermit head and I had opened it up that morning and put a big, like a fake dead fly, a fake fly uh-huh. about like an inch long in its mouth. And so while I'm loading the camera, Kermit's like. Going, going off on what's that in my mouth? What do you got in my mouth? You know, I don't need flies. And this whole thing's going on. Anyway, that was a, a great production to work on, and it still plays, and it's wonderful. It's in a special theater in California world. It's called Muppet Vision 3D. It, you know, it was done, you know, ton a long time ago. It's the perfect 3D it still movie. Plays? It still plays. No it's way. great 3D. It's funny as can be. It's just like the perfect 3D show. I mean, I. So, I, Captain EO, what was the response? Like, when you were done, and it finally there was a ribbon on it? I, it was a. It was. It was well received. There, there's people like like uh, uh, Christian Ackerman up here who's got posters of it in his office, and I mean they just love it. A lot of people love it. They have a, a what's nice. They had a making of running on TV monitors as you stood in line, in, in oh. Frontier World, and I was on and I was on the monitor, you know, focusing. It was obviously like in a shot, you know. So awesome. I like, you know, so it was cool because I could send people. To go see it, and I'd be there. So anyway, after Michael died, they brought it back because they pulled it when Michael was going through his problems. Yeah. And so it, it was gone for like ten years, and they brought it back in, and, and it, uh, in two thousand ten like, they brought it back till two thousand fifteen. Oh really? And uh, it they brought it back partially because there was a three D movie called uh, Honey I Shrunk the Audience, mm-hmm. and I shot the test things on it. I didn't work on it. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I never saw it. 
I never heard a good thing about it. I think it was a terrible story. It was just a bad movie. So that had been playing at Disneyland. And I thought, Michael died. Everybody's got this resurgence of interest in him. Yeah. Let's put it back in. So they put it back in and, and, and ran it for uh, five years back in, in Tomorrowland. So it lived on. Now it's you know retired. And whether it comes back again or not, I don't know. Huh. But it really is just expensive music video, you know. Um, I don't know, and the, the, I think that the Magic Journeys, the one we did in '79 and '80, I think it might still be living on somewhere at Epcot. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100 sure. Are there like so? There are people are going into theaters to see these. They're not like walking around and they're just playing, right? Like you go and watch. You got to sit down, and it could, it might or might not have moving seats. I think. Actually, yeah. When they brought that, and it does it like it blows air on you. Yeah, this one does. And they, 4D. I got so sick at one of those. At yeah, they call this the original 4D, but that wasn't really. I don't think till they brought it back after his death, uh-huh. and and those seats were then uh, rigged for an, to move. Uh, so it wasn't originally the so seats nonsense. didn't move, but they used to blow air and water. Yeah. The Muppet Vision squirts water on you in Fozzie Bear. Really? Has the, has the faucet that. Oh. Yeah. Of course, they missed water into the audience when Fozzie Bear is squirting this stuff. Uh, when are we going to get smell? Smell of vision? Well, that's that goes back to you know Michael Todd. No, you, no, no, don't know. He was married to a lady named Elizabeth Taylor. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh. Michael Todd was Todd A.O. and Todd Vision. He came up with a smell of vision. He literally, they played around, and this has been like, I don't know, late 60s. Yeah. They played around with smell of vision under Michael Todd and Todd A.O. and the movie camera, it's the movie camera company and everything. And it was actually an attempt made. And I think that it, I think what killed it, from what I understand, was that the odors would linger. Oh, so you, you get a mishmash and they overwrite, and then pretty soon you're. You're, you know, you're just in like a garbage pail or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So that they couldn't flush the air out fast enough. Yeah, so totally. it's been thought of. Oh man, that seems like a terrible idea. I was oh, kidding. sounds horrible. <laughs> Smell-o-vision. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I got most of the basic stories out. So 3D lives on. I think it's good in theme parks. Yeah. I personally. Uh, I've seen. I saw Avatar. That was fine and good. I saw Bolt. I bought that little dog. I went mm-hmm. saw that in Spokane. I enjoyed that, you know. But in general, I would never buy a 3D TV. And I do. I like oh, my favorite yeah. movie of all time is What's Eating Gilbert Grape. It's probably, yeah. it's, probably that's it's a, your favorite movie of all time. Pretty so much. Good. That movie would not be enhanced by 3D. Now, right. <laughs> well, exactly. That's my point, you know. And I worked on the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, Part Six, where Freddy's dead, and I'm working on all these things, and I could. Give a, a rat's ass about, yeah. about it, you know. And, and Katzenberg has constantly been crowing about 3D is going to save the film industry. He was the spokesperson for it. And when the 3D TV sets were all being built, and that's yeah. all you could buy and everything, and, was, and that drum roll was going on, I just, I could, I didn't, I didn't want anything to do with 3D. I mean, Are the new 3D TVs good? They don't make them anymore. They don't? I thought they No, had... they stopped. They they pulled the plug that on that. Oh, it's quick. over. Yeah, it's over. It it went. Wow. Now there's now it's all this uh, the the uh, uh, 4K. Yeah, they're replacing and the and the, and the HDR stuff. The high dynamic range is another uh, good feature to look for in sets. And those are both okay features, but they're still before their time because you really can't stream that quality and stuff. So it's really kind I, of bogus. My mom has a, a nice HD TV, like a new HD TV, and when we watch HD things, it looks bad to me. And I don't know if it's because I'm not used to it, but it looks like uh, cheap. 
Right, there's a there's a problem, and some of that's do with interpolation in the TVs and stuff, where you don't get the motion blur like you get that's, with film and yep, stuff. Totally, and it's that crystalline sharpness, and it's something, that, and it pulls you out of the romantic feel of the story. You know, it feels yeah. it, that it's totally opposite of like film light. Totally. You know, twenty four frame where you got a motion blur and uh, a softer palette and yeah. what have you. So it is problem. Some of that you can adjust. There's some. Uh, there's a Setting on TVs, it's a, I don't know what it's called. It's a, it's a setting that you can, uh, that might be turned on like a sports setting or something that makes it extra sharp and stuff. And sometimes you can, you can go into settings and change it. I can't remember what it's called exactly, but it, it might be worth trying to find that. Um, you are married. Yeah. No. I've been married for like 46 years. Oh, that's one of which is like a... Mom. Which is like, <laughs> return to hooker. Yeah, hook I was, yeah, was going to say, why don't you go to my mom's house? <laughs> and hook her up TV. Oh, that's helpful. Uh, uh, who's the most difficult director you've ever worked with? Can you say that? Oh, I would. Like, I'd like to say Paul Verhoeven, uh, you know, RoboCop and everything. I worked on Total Recall. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because he's famous for throwing tantrums and stuff. And my friend Eric, was, uh, my dear friend, uh, he, he did uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, he directed. But he, he did Men in Black as an effects guy. Uh, he was working on it down there in Mexico City. It was shot at Churubusco Studios in Mexico City, and I went down for about a week. and And Eric said that you better, you know, just stay clear of the guy because he goes off every day. On he'll just like pick a crew member at random and just go off on him. Really? And I didn't see that happen. I didn't have any problem with him. I was only there a week. In fact, the, the thing that was remarkable for me is I was. Uh, doing blue screen uh, work. This is for Total Recall? Total Recall. I was up in a, a, a scaffolding way in there, like 30 feet up with a camera that would drop down on a track. And the set was opposite me, this great big scaffolding set, and Arnold was up. It's okay. Oh. <laughs> Arnold was up. Arnold Schwarzenegger was up on top of the set piece. It was way up in the air like me. He didn't know I was there. Uh-huh. Nobody could see him. He was starting to get it on with it. Uh, kissing oh and everything God. with the leading lady. I had my spy camera with me. Oh. <laughs> I had the spy camera with me, and oh, I took it out of my thing, and I did, and I didn't have the nerve because he's only he's straight across like twenty feet, but he didn't know I was there. He didn't see me, I, and I thought, oh, sh-. I didn't have the nerve to take the picture. Oh, oh, you could have made him president. He wouldn't have been governor. Oh. <laughs> he totally <laughs> would have been governor. He wouldn't have been. He, he wouldn't have been governor. Uh, how long did you work on Total Recall? Just like a week. I went down sure. there because uh, cam- uh, there was an effects camera and they had to come and do a TV commercial. So I went down, and just shot some blue screen stuff. I, but you were on. But you were on. I was everybody. I, I, the day I arrived was like the the wrap day. Uh-huh. The movie was over. There was going to be a second unit for a week, so I got shuttled from the airport to the uh, wrap party. So the wrap party was an exclusive restaurant that they had bought the whole thing. There was like. 30 tables, yeah. beautiful tables. Each table had multiple things of vodka and wine. Oh, it was a great party. Yeah. Somebody started passing out some, like, Nerf balls or something. <laughs> and people started, like, throwing them and then squirt guns. Oh, yeah. I picked up... This is... Another, this I could have gotten in trouble. I picked up a, a hard dinner roll. <laughs> I'm not a sports guy. I, I don't play baseball. I never have. I picked up a hard dinner roll and I threw it and I hit Arnold in the head. <laughs> Right. Oh, this is so satisfying. Right, right in the temple. Yeah. And I just like, holy shit! I couldn't believe that I like lobbed that thing and I hit a drug and I just turned away. I was like, just holy shit! He's gonna kill me. Oh yeah, but that made him so mad. He was so pissed. 
Yes. No, I don't think so. Yeah. It wasn't, it was just a, you know, bolillos, a Mexican hard dinner roll, yeah. dinner yeah. rolls. I mean, oh, they're, yeah. they're, they're, bolillos are wonderful. You can't even really find something. I've like knocked someone unconscious with one. Yeah, yeah you, could, you could take <laughs> you somebody could out. really take someone out. Uh, you worked on Predator? Yeah, same deal. Sure. I worked on Predator for like a week. It was down on Palenque where the great Maya ruins are. Oh. I was out at a place called oh. Misol Ha. It's a waterfall that goes into a cenote. You know, underground caves, yeah, kind of things. Yeah, so but it's a waterfall, and then it drops down to a cenote, which is it was full of water. Yeah, and that's where the creature's going to blow himself up. So Arnold wasn't there because we we were just dealing with the creature and a stunt a stunt double for Arnold because you weren't going to see his face in this. So it was just me supervising the uh, the uh, creature self detonation scene where the yeah. creature oh wow types this thing, and I was just there. I was sent down by Dream Quest. Uh, company and just to make sure that I yeah I was trying to secure the camera so it wasn't shaking so the people that added the visual effects didn't have more, is, you know is the stunt double thing just because he's Arnold is an expensive person to just film the back of his head what because well always, you don't want to hurt him so you, anything dangerous you're going to use the stunt double in really. Yeah, there's stunt doubles all over the place, you know. No, but I mean, he was. Yeah, I, I guess I'm talking about more the stuff where it's like a conversation or something, not like he's jumping no, through a window. Oh, on something like that. Is it just because he's like no. crappy? Are there? Is yeah, Arnold's, crappy? Arnold's actually. Arnold's actually. He's not a. He doesn't have any sense of humor because he's you know Teutonic Austrian. He yeah. The one said he, the one joke he made. I didn't talk to Arnold directly at all. But uh, it, that one day he left and he said, "Well, you know, well, he's nice working with you all." I said, "This is the only show I'd never met anybody I made a friend with or something like that." He made some like just it wasn't even funny. I was like, "Why would he even say that?" <laughs> <laughs> That seems right. That seems right. But it was like, but the thing about Arnold is, just like Michael, they give one hundred and ten percent, and they're there for all the promo stuff later on. They're they're yeah. they're on set on time. They do their job. They're not giving anybody an attitude. So I'm That's impressed cool. with both of those guys yeah. uh, in their ability to, to, you know, to really follow through and and deliver. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're a producer and you hire those guys, the thing, the one of the reasons that the Captain EO costs so much. Michael decide, Michael was a kind of a 3D fan and a Disney fan. He got in cahoots with my friend Eric Brevig and at Disney Studios, and they kept adding effects and making him better. And, and Michael, it wasn't about Michael saying, I want to see myself more often. It was yeah. Michael saying, that thing doesn't come off the screen enough. It isn't as cool. What can we do? So he got in cahoots with Eric. And they just were, you know, running roughshod over the producers that wanted to just you know, stop spending money. We're done. It's good enough. It's good enough. It's yeah. good enough. So when the final premiere opening they were going to have, I think more for cast and crew at Disneyland, an exclusive thing, the producers made sure that my friend Eric wasn't allowed to come. Oh. <laughs> he wasn't allowed given a ticket or anything. So Jesus. they. So anyway. Because they were mad at him. For yeah. Spending all so the, the car, the Rolls Royce pulled up in front of Disney. The door opened. Out stepped Eric Brevig. And Michael Jackson. And Michael Jackson. That's amazing. I like that. Um, Think about, oh, one thing about Eric, too, because I just love talking about the guy. When he was really young, like, I don't know, early UCLA, he would get into Monty Python concerts by falsifying the press passes and go backstage, you know, with John Cleese and everybody. And he was like just, I mean, Eric is just a master trickster. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, Looking through the IMDb page, um, I, my age group would lose their mind if you talked about working on one episode of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Okay, uh, I, <laughs> Pee Wee's Playhouse, what I worked on was the, was the, uh, 
all these special effects stuff, all the uh -huh. little creatures, Miss Penny, uh, the dinosaurs, the refrigerator people. Uh -huh. So what happened, they, they farmed it, they farmed it, uh, like one season or what, uh, out to some friends of mine that has a, kind of a special effects company and stage. And I was brought in as a director of photography and there was a whole bunch of animators, you know, that can move things. There was a whole bunch of creature builders that were building things out of Play-Doh and latex, whatever. And they created these stations. So there's one with a refrigerator set. Uh -huh. There'd be one uh, with the dinosaur world. Uh, there's one with Miss Penny. And I would go from stage to stage. These are little five-foot-by-five-foot five stages. They're little tiny things. And yeah. I would do all the lighting, get the camera set, the exposure set, and then I would just hand a, a, a remote button control to the animator, and he would take the pictures and then and move the it. thing. Wow. So my job was just to go motoring around, and then oh. you know we'd do another angle, and I'd reset the camera, reset the lighting, get everything ready, yeah. and then the animators would sit there for hours and be moving them around. So and that's the best so way to do that. There's no, it's so it's, tedious. It's tedious, but it's also kind of magic. The yeah. first Jurassic Park was stop motion, and yeah. my friend won the Academy Award for go motion, and where they were moving them frame by frame, but they were moving them during the frame a little bit, so they had a little blur, and it took away that juddering jerkiness that you see in all the Ray Harryhausen movies, yeah. you know, the, the Sinbad and you know, so all those things. You're talking about like the, like where the, the Jurassic World's not CGI in Jurassic Park. Right, it's actual. They actually did motion control. For, no uh, kidding. Phil, uh, Phil Tippett and my friend um, Stuart Ziff, and they won an Academy Award for Go Motion because that was the first time anybody had, had the wherewithal to actually be able to motorize during the exposure, tiny little movement, totally. so that it would blur it enough to be, you know, like like live action. Yeah. Wow. So that was that was kind of a. I was offered a. The job as a cameraman on ET after uh, this, at the, uh, Dennis Muren called me up and asked me if I wanted to be a cameraman up there at ILM, and I turned him down. And the reason there's several reasons. Reason number one is I liked having my time to myself to go travel to Mexico and Guatemala and Alaska, and I didn't want a steady lifetime job, which would it would have entailed going up there. Yeah. The other reason is that they wanted me to do the smoke the, the smoke stage. Because back in those days, back prior to E.T. and um, Close Encounters and everything, little miniatures were filmed in smoke rooms. They'd fill it with smoke, and they'd move it, and that's why you could see the shafts of light. But you had to be in there breathing the smoke oh. the whole time for weeks and weeks. Oh. So and that was like the end of that, – that was probably the last show that was all in, done in a smoke stage. But before that, like The Abyss – all those shows were done on the smoke rooms with controlled amount of smoke and then frame wow. by frame computer control. I didn't want to be in the smoke stage, and they were going to offer, they were going to pay me like two dollars an hour less. Uh -huh. So, but it was primarily the biggest thing was the smoke, but also the uh, it was it was a full time, time job. And yeah. all my friends went up there. Scott Farrar, Brevig ended up there. They they won on got Academy Awards. Uh, Scott did uh, Cocoon. He got an Academy Award for that. And uh, unfortunately, he's stuck in an endless line of Transformers. He's done all five of them. Oh, well. God. And I don't... This is a burning garbage. That <laughs> I, I won't see him. Uh, so, but anyway, and, uh, and he, did, uh, he did Congo, which I think was another probably winner. Oh, wow. Oh. We talked about Congo on this podcast we a lot, which Congo is really a lot. Yeah, funny. I know. <laughs> I know. I haven't seen it. There are a lot of these things I'm smart enough not to go to. Do you like, yeah. uh, do you like Guillermo del Toro? Which movies? One? Guillermo del Toro movies? Uh, yeah. Because I feel like he's doing a lot of that. Uh, I love that. I love the, uh, the Devil's Backbone. Devil's Backbone? Didn't he do that? He, oh, you mean the he, actor? Not no, 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 no. I mean the director. Yeah, he yeah, did yeah, Devil's yeah. Backbone. Uh, which is done in Spanish. 
Did yeah, he Pacific is it Rim? called? He did Pacific Rim. Yeah. He did oh, Hellboy did he do 2. Pacific Rim? That was just kind of a. That's the one with John uh, Cusack. No. No. no, 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 that's tw- that's, that's two thousand twelve. Yeah, that's yeah. twenty twelve. No, oh, that movie. That's so bad. But I love Devil's Backbone, but it was done in Spanish. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, I did the Pan's Labyrinth. I love that. That's yeah, cool. I, I no, those movies I like. He's doing a lot. Yeah, cool. I don't know why I said that. You know, we're bringing it back to. And positive. I love and Blade Runner. I love uh, my friends were all working on Blade Runner when I was in L.A. Yeah. They were they were coming and telling me this like, the Blade Runner was they shot it outside between the stages, but they blocked everything in. So all day long you'd be in the dark. Oh man! And then you you know with the water drizzling and yeah. all that crap. And then you come you know you drive home in the dark, and then you come back the next day and be oh, in the dark. And it was just like it just dark. Was, it was. Depressing movie to work on, and uh, but that's I, probably the oh, mood. And then yeah. guess what? Here's a okay. No, that's not. I'm starting to get coffees hitting me now. I'm getting yeah, really, yeah. I'm starting to get really jacked because I was going <laughs> to talk about my you know cave exploring background and everything. And I got some cavers in the movie business. Uh, it's a few cavers in. I got them into the motion picture business. One of them, Ernie Garza, actually appeared. In, he worked on Blade Runner. In the darkroom, in the uh, special effects darkroom, doing stuff for it, but he ended up in uh, in Ghostbusters. He was the Chinaman holding the rubber duck in a newspaper article of the uh, the of the events that were occurring, the uh, poltergeist type events in New York yeah, City. Yeah, yeah. And they took my friend Ernie, he's a little Hispanic guy, about five foot three or something, and they put him up on wires and put a hat on, him, made him look like a Chinaman, and had gave him a rubber chicken and took a picture of it, and that ended up in the movie. Oh, funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that shot cost one million dollars. Yeah, that was a cheap one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's like, we can start to wrap up. Uh, you wish you need to come back. Yeah, because there's we got a lot. I've got so a lot of stories. Other stuff. I also want to talk more about your Montana life. Yeah, the whole story of how I got here and how it involved the governor of California. Governor of uh, no, I not this. I got the governor of uh, of uh, Colorado. And we there in a in a, a range tryst in in 1976 in the jungles in the after earthquake. So that was kind of interesting. So <laughs> holy shit! Let's uh, we just kicked off one a, more hour. Let's do yeah. a to be continued yeah, on that we note. Well, that's <laughs> I just I just have a, a I just find that really a, a funny little thing. But I got that whole story of how I came to be here and it goes back to actually uh, cave exploring. I went cave exploring in Mexico in 1970 on an expedition with these guys I had just met and I didn't know and I just learned to use a rope and everything and we went down in the jungles and that trajectory of having done that led to me moving to Hamilton, Montana because in, because in 1980 I met a guy from Hamilton that was running archaeology tours in the Maya ruins and stuff and we became friends and that all led to me moving to Montana oh, shit. But, uh, can people see your yeah. photography anywhere? Yeah, just go on Facebook and Steve Slocum. It's just kind of S L O C O M B, like comb. Yeah. Uh, and you can go under the albums, and I've got all the my it's pictures. An, there's awesome. there's hundreds of there's hundreds and hundreds of pictures under albums if awesome. you look look around there. Uh, Steve, thank you for coming. Yes, we like you. have to have you right yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. I think soon. <laughs> Obviously, awesome. uh, this has been Jamie and Travis present. present. Thanks. Jamie and Travis, Jamie and Travis.